He doesn't claim to be a singer or a true musician, but Al Stewart has been crafting intelligent folk and pop-laced songs for over 45 years. From his early roots in England to his migration to the States in the mid-70s, his distinct voice and timeless sound has graced the airwaves and has sold millions of albums worldwide. Today, Inside Music Cast is proud to welcome this legendary songwriter to our show. This is Al Stewart. Inside Music Cast welcomes Al Stewart. Hey, Al, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Welcome. You know, your career has spanned an incredible uh, 45 years plus with, with no signs of slowing down. And, and <laughs> you know, when you stop and think about it, 45 years in this business, you've seen so many changes in the industry. And, and you, know, just, you know, just to get us started off, what are some of the changes that, have, that you, know, you feel have affected you the most or have uh, through the transitions of the years? What, any, anything in particular that stand out? Well, I mean, I've, I've been different people over the course of the years. I mean, when I very first started out, I was inspired by 
Lonnie Donegan, as was everyone of my generation from mm-hmm. England. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lonnie Donegan is the reason that John Lennon met Paul McCartney. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's a fairly important character. Um, so well, I, w- I was playing, I suppose you'd call it skiffle, um, mm-hmm. basically very fast versions of American folk songs when I was, you know, when I was in my early teens. Right. And then the rock and roll thing happened, and, um, you know, I... All the all the, the famous people, Elvis Presley, the Everly Brothers, you know, um, particular favorites of mine like Eddie Cochran and Dwayne Eddy. Um, so I, I joined a, a band when I left school, and I played. I guess I played Wipeout and Twist and Shout about three times every night. <laughs> 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 and um, you know, I did, you know, I, I saw I was a rock and roller for a, a couple of years. Um, then I moved up to London just in time for the um, opening salvos of, of the uh, British contemporary folk scene that was dominated by people like Bert Chance and John Remborn, and then later on um, a whole host of other people, Roy mm-hmm. Harper, Ralph McTowell, Richard Thompson, Sandy Denny, Nick Drake, the Incredible String Band, uh, Fairport Convention, Still I Span. Um, so I got involved in all of that for a while. And then in the middle of that, um, I, I ran into... Uh, Luke O'Reilly, who decided to manage me, and uh, Alan Parsons, who decided to produce me, and I, sure. all of a sudden I became a, a highly stylized um, pop balladeer <laughs> 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 with a couple of hits to show for it. Um, I did that for a while, um, and then I basically um, concentrated for the last 20 years more or less on um, going back to my acoustic roots, only writing um, the large numbers of historical songs. So, I guess I'm a, a, a folk rock historian or historical folk rock singer now. So I've actually been about five different things. So yeah. it's uh, when you say what the changes are in the music business, a lot of them have happened internally within me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you one follow-up question to that uh, uh, to that question that Rick just asked, Al. And it has to do with, you know, I've been listening to recently because we were going to have you on the show, you know, to, to, to revisit, you know, a large portion of your catalog of albums. And I'm really amazed how little your voice has really changed uh i mean to me you sound nearly identical or compared to your younger days i mean you talk about your changes you're a different person your voice is, has stayed uh very consistent uh what do you attribute to that I mean, because that doesn't happen with a lot of artists out there well i have a picture of dorian gray on my wall i think <laughs> i'm a little concerned about it myself um i think i think my voice has gone down a semitone or two um yeah. i can't really hit um much above E at the moment. I used to be able to, you know, maybe be able to hit F sharp, you know. But I have a very limited range. Um, Very, very early on in this business, I realized that I couldn't sing, and and that gave me, um, it really changed my whole perspective. Because if you listen to singers, they they draw out notes. If you you listen to Whitney Houston, you know, singing, I will always love you. Whatever it is, a lot of breathing, um, yeah. and the, the notes go on forever. If you listen to what I do um, in a lot of my songs, uh, and especially in the very fast ones, things like Soho, I'm going brainstorm, brainstorm, faces in the maelstrom, hover by the puddles in the shadows where the drains run. I'm not, I'm not lingering on um, a single syllable for more than about one tenth of a second. Yeah. So it isn't really singing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is just as well, because I have a range of about 10 notes. You know? <laughs> but I think, if you're talking about my voice, I think I've managed by writing so many words um, and, and by constantly bouncing from syllable to syllable to disguise the fact that I don't really know how to sing. 
Well, <laughs> we uncovered something here. We did. I, well, well, I was I mean, like, it, 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 it's straightforward, but most people don't. You know, yeah. I think they've got better things to do than to you know work out who's singing and who isn't. You know? Yeah, I follow you. But I'm not the only one. Bob Dylan can't sing either. Yeah, and he does much <laughs> the same thing. And if you listen to Elvis Costello, who can sort of sing, um, yeah, you've exactly. got. Uh, yeah, the, the same idea, the idea right. that you don't spend very much time on any syllable. What it means is you end up with 300 words in a song instead of 30 or even three if you're the Bee Gees. You gloss over them very, very quickly. And, um, you know, so you don't spend any time actually singing during the song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got to catch my breath. Yeah, here. me too. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> So this may go, be more information than you need. <laughs> no, we love it. We need it all. Just uh, let's go way back. You were born in Glasgow, Scotland, but you essentially grew up in uh, in England in Wimborne Minster, I believe, with your mother. And was was music an influential part of your life at, at a really early age? Yes, yes. Um, uh, the the family were always playing. Um, they had a choral society. Uh, they used to keep me awake when I was a very young child. I used to have the Hallelujah Chorus, uh, you know, sort of wandering upstairs to haunt me as I was trying to go to sleep. Uh, my mother eventually learned to play the clarinet. My grandfather was actually in a professional orchestra, one of my grandfathers, mm-hmm. um, the Liverpool Philharmonic. Uh, he was a trumpeter. So, um, on, on my father, um, who I never knew, he died before I was born, played jazz piano. So, um, I had it coming and going from all angles from a very early age. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Al, before we move forward, uh, Eddie and I would like to introduce you to Inside Music Cast correspondent Kim Riley, who's also joining us today. Hi, Al, again. Hello, Kim. <laughs> Hi, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I wanted to ask you, when did you first pick up a guitar and start to play? Um, I, I think when I was 13. Um, prior to that, because we couldn't, uh, I don't know, I guess we couldn't, I think my parents didn't believe that I was serious about it, and um so I, I got a trial period. They bought me a ukulele, um, and I had the ukulele for a year. And then, because I'd, I'd persevered with it, I actually got a guitar. Um, this had this produced a very comical result because my one of my early guitar heroes was Dwayne Eddy, um, and of course he plays everything on the, the bottom two strings of the guitar. Um, and the first thing I ever learned on the guitar was the the Peter Gunn theme. You know, down, 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 down. Except I played it on the ukulele, so it can't. That's great. It didn't really sound right at all. Needed the guitar. I mean, the Peter Gunn theme on the ukulele just doesn't work. I'm sorry, it doesn't work. I needed a guitar. And it was right before my 14th birthday. It was probably for my 14th birthday, but I got it a little early. Well, that's great. <laughs> you know, I believe you were around 19 or so when you moved to London. Is that correct? Well, it says so in the song. That's true. It, it does. <laughs> it must be true. <laughs> it must be true. Well, I'm assuming, yeah. I'm assuming. you know, obviously it was your love for music that probably brought you there and to get into that whole London music scene that was really burgeoning around that time. And yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I went up to play in rock bands because that's what I've been doing in Bournemouth. And um, the, the first person I saw in London was Bert Chance, um, the first person I saw perform. And I mean, it completely blew my mind. I mean, I'd never heard anything like it at all. It just—I didn't know there was anything like it. Um, and instead of uh, you know joining a you know a, a sort of a mid '60s uh, rock and roll band and going off and touring German air bases or whatever that was that they wanted me to do, um, I, I just became transfixed by what was happening on the folk scene. Um, and I discovered Bob Dylan by then, and um, I, I just basically um, got diverted because I, I went to London. You know, because I thought I was going to join, uh, oh, I don't know, 
um, well, you know, whatever the one one of the sort of um, you know mid sixties British invasion bands, and, and actually that never happened. I got diverted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, during that the period that you had moved to London, um, you know, tell us about what you were experiencing. You you, you mentioned the the folk band was big, but uh, around the sixties, you know, you were meeting people left and right. I mean, the whole music industry, the scene must have just been exploding. That uh, it just sort of propelled you into your your own music and, and collaboration. At what early age did you start collaborating with people once you met them? Well, um, I I got probably incredibly lucky. Lucky in a way. I mean the. In those days, you know, there were no such things as superstars. So, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't, uh, when people were rock stars, they didn't travel with an entourage. They just went out, you know. So by the time I was, I think, 21, I met the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And I shared a flat with Simon and Garfunkel for a while. And mm-hmm. I worked with Yoko Ono for a while. <laughs> My first recording session, right, with Jimmy Page was on the session. So this amazing procession of people, you know, like, I just kind of met. Um, but I, I didn't, uh, with the exception of John Lennon, um, most of the other ones, I, you know, I met them before they became, you know, incredibly famous. So you didn't know you were meeting famous people. Right, right. I mean, when I was hanging out, listening to Paul every day, rehearsed, you know, sort of sitting, sitting in a chair in this little East End flat that we were living in. I mean, I, I thought, wow. you know, this guy, you know, he can go out and he can get 10 pounds a night, which seemed like a fortune to me. Yeah. But the idea that he was, uh, you know, just about to have a number one hit single in America would have, I mean, if you'd have told me that, I, w- I would have said it was a, a physical impossibility. So right, yeah. I've learned, uh, you know, never say never in the music business. You know? So you just mentioned Yoko Ono a moment ago. And is, is the story true that I've read about how you ported ways with your last 100 pounds uh, that, so to help to support a, a film that she was producing called Number Four? Yeah, I, yeah, that's right. I'm a co-producer of film Number Four. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Yoko <laughs> persuaded me. What it was was I, I had a tape recorder and uh, Yoko was going through a phase where she wanted to make music and she wanted a guitar player and she wanted a, she didn't have a tape recorder. And I, I, I played the guitar and I had a tape recorder so Yoko would come around <laughs> probably about twice a week for about a year and we would record endless versions of, um, basically I, I tuned it into modal D and played like a sort of an Indian raga style uh-huh. accompaniment and Yoko did whatever she did over the top of it. I remember we did like about a six hour version of a song called The Snow Is Falling and I, I wish I had it back but of course I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, it, halfway through all of this she, uh, she decided to make this film uh-huh. and um, we, we were going to have the premiere at the Royal Hall. I said, what, what is it about? Because she wanted £100. And she said, it's naked bottoms. And I said, well, you know, sex sells, it can't go wrong. You know? <laughs> and she said, yeah, we're going to have the premiere at the Albert Hall and um, in front of 5,000 people. And I thought, whoa. <laughs> and she said, well, yeah, you can earn 10% of it. I think the whole thing only costs £1,000. So I said, fine, I shall become a, you know, I, I like the idea of being a film director. I was 21. Um, and uh, we, we made them, or she made the movie, and um, it debuted in a, in a porn theater in the West End of London, and there were seven people in the audience, uh, uh, two, four of which were us, uh, my then husband and myself and my then girlfriend. And so there were three paying customers, and as far as I know, they're, they're the only three people who've ever paid to see this thing. So. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, let, me, let me ask you a question. I, I well, think you know, that- the story gets even better. It created a dilemma, because after she met Lennon, um, you know, I, I was going through a period where I really needed the money. And, um, you know, we, we, my girlfriend called up Apple Records and said, uh, you know, like, uh, Yoko has a hundred pounds and, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, we, we kind of need it. 
And uh, six days later, a check came from Lenin, um, which created another dilemma because I'm holding a, a you know like a piece of paper in my hand with John Lennon's signature on it. You know, yeah, do I right. cash it? Do I hang on to it? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the need for groceries overcame me, and I, 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 I put it in the bank. So I don't have it anymore. But it's just kind of magical things. I mean, for whatever reason, there was a lot of stuff happening in London at the time, and I was sort of quite often in the right place at the right time, I suppose. That's hilarious. I, the the movie, like you said, was about just a series of shots of people's bums, and, and uh, yeah. I, was, I was curious to know, was your bum in, the, in this movie? <laughs> no, no, I'm not in the movie at all. Um, when Yoko told me it was Naked Bottoms, I thought, well, you know, obviously she means it's Naked Bottoms, but it's got to have a plot. I mean, I just, I, it never occurred to me that there were going to be 360 Naked Bottoms, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so it really wasn't a plot to the movie. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the celebrities who were probably celebrities before they were celebrities, you, you, is it true that you brought your first guitar from police guitarist Andy Summers? Um, I bought a guitar from him. It wasn't my first guitar, okay. but as I said, it was given to me on my birthday. Sure, sure. Um, but I, I did buy a guitar of Andy, yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you two meet, and what kind of guitar did you purchase oh, from him? Uh, he was already something of a legend in Bournemouth. Um, it's an interesting, the Bournemouth beat group scene, we had, I think, about 80 different rock bands at one time. This is a small seaside town, so that's phenomenal. Um, Andy was, uh, he wasn't playing rock and roll, he was playing uh, jazz. I right. think he was a big fan of Wes Montgomery. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know him. I mean, I knew he was selling his guitar, and I, I, it was a Gibson. I just, you know, I thought I'd like to have it, so I bought it off him. And um, Andy's career is just almost unique, isn't it? I mean, he was, uh, he was, then he played with Zoot Money for a while. He was in a psychedelic band called yeah. uh, Dantalian's Chariot. Um, and I think he was, you know, I don't know this exactly. It seems to me that he was in his mid-30s maybe by the time that, uh, you know, as a kind of a last shot after 20 years in the music business, he decided to join a group called The Police. But <laughs> he'd done everything up until that point and none of it had really worked, you know. So it's just, and he was a great guitar player, still is. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so his story is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And Bournemouth had um, oh, a lot of people came from Bournemouth: uh, Greg Lake of Emerson Lake and Palmer, nice. um, and uh, Lee Kerslake, who, who joined Uriah Heep and I. For a while, we were going to form a power pop trio together. Now, that never happened. I, uh, Robert Fripp from King Crimson used to catch the bus with me. I mean, you know, when we were kids, because wow. he lived just down the street, <laughs> so we would take the bus together to him. To, to Bournemouth and back, and uh, I don't know, a whole host of people came from Bournemouth. Yeah. You know, Al, um, on the flip side of your first solo recording, The Elf, um, you had a remake uh, of a track, a Yardbirds tune, actually, called Turn Into Earth, and uh, on that track, you enlisted Jimmy Page to play guitar, and I, I just wanted to ask you about how that relationship with Jimmy transpired. Yeah, um, when I met him in the studio when we were doing the, doing the Elf session, um, I, uh, you know, we were showing each other things on the guitar because we, you know, there's a lot of downtime in the studio where you're just hanging out. And um, I think I showed him modal detuning. I'm, I got a feeling I probably did. I don't think he knew it. Um, he tried to teach me how to play scales in harmonics, which I absolutely couldn't do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, I think we hit it off fairly well because he then played on, um, you know, as you say, on another couple of my albums. Yeah. So, in working with Jimmy, I mean, how how did you first connect with him? What did he bring to your music? Um, well, you know, we were looking for a guitar player. I, I was making an album called Love Chronicles, and mm-hmm. um, most of the album, actually, the lead guitar player is Richard Thompson, uh, playing under an assumed name. He, he decided to call himself Marvin Prestwick on the record, because <laughs> I guess because he was 
assigned to Ireland. Okay. Um, and Jimmy, great story. Jimmy, Jimmy Page arrived. He'd already you know, formed Led Zeppelin, and um, or he was just forming it, I forget. And um, he arrived in a, in a Rolls Royce, driven by this enormous guy who, who I decided had to be a roadie. He was kind of dressed fairly shabbily, and he was huge and bulky. And he was carrying Jimmy's guitar. So this guy comes in and sits down on, in the corner of the room and doesn't say anything. And Jimmy and I run through the song. And we recorded a couple of times, and then we decide we want a cup of tea. So it, somewhat imperiously, I turn around to the guy who I think is the roadie and said, would you go across the street and get us a cup of tea? And without saying anything, he just got up and went and got the tea. I found out later it was Peter Grant, who was, the, who was their manager, and who had a, this wild reputation for yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like violently assaulting anyone who got in his way. So the fact that I sent Peter Grant off to get a cup of tea, I think, is... Um, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. He, he didn't kill me. He just bought the tea back. Wow. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Al, let's talk about Love Chronicles while we're on it. Uh, it's an 18-minute autobiographical compilation of, uh, of uh, different tracks that garnered actually a very special award in the, in the U.K. Well, it, it, it was, uh, I was reading a lot of Jean-Paul Sartre, and I'd become uh, serious, seriously uh, obsessed with the uh, French existentialist movement. And uh, what that meant, reading all of Sartre and all of Camus and uh, de Beauvoir and Jean Genet and anyone else I could get my hands on. Um, and the, the, the Sartre style of writing, or for that matter, all of them, was the confessional style. Um, uh-huh. You know, you, you, you woke up in the morning, you had a cup of tea, you cleaned your teeth and you made love to your girlfriend or whatever it is. And, and, and then you wrote it down the way it happened. If you read Camus or Sartre, that's exactly how they write. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I just took a look at, you know, my attempted love life up until that point, uh, and I just put it down the way it was, really, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. in, the, in the spirit of the existentialist style. Um, and, uh, of course, I used uh, what I suppose is considered a rude word, except I, I didn't use the, the four-syllable version of it. I used the uh, present participle. Um, <laughs> and, and the way I used it, I was to say it felt... Uh, more like that, and le- it felt less like that, and more like making love. And there was really no other way to say what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the result of all of this, of course, was that uh, you know I made the front page of the uh, Sunday papers and God knows what else. And, and the BBC immediately said that it had been banned and they wouldn't play it. But the BBC had never played an 18-minute song. Probably still has never played an 18-minute song. <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't really an issue. It was all a smokescreen. But it was interesting yeah. for a while. Yeah. Al, we want to uh, take a short break, and we want to listen to a track from your 2008 release called Sparks of Ancient Light. And this is a track called The Ear of the Night from today's guest, Al Stewart.
put your tongue in the ear of the night Expecting rejection but finding instead A sudden connection that left you surprised And it gave you electrical thoughts in your head Emboldened by this you attempted a kiss On the brow of a mystery passing you by And thus were afforded a simple reward In the shape of a chord from a street corner choir Through her window you could see her with her solitary air You felt a sudden twinge inside you from her military hair And though you'd have normally acted quite formally This was a moment to open a door You instantly mated and constantly dated Though your mother hated the clothes that she wore Oh well signed with CBS in the UK and I think you I think through CBS you released uh, six albums there and yeah. your commercial success was was probably not what you wanted but you developed a pretty loyal uh, following during this time and I'm just curious about your your um, you know your performances in the UK during that time I mean were you playing pretty much weekly nightly how often were you playing I probably did 100 150 shows a year I mean, yeah. I was playing quite a lot uh-huh. um I began in folk clubs, and then we. I, 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 at the time, the, the folk scene was really big on the college circuit, so sure. we, then we started playing every university in the country. Now, I, I played so many times at Warwick University that I was thinking of getting taking a room there. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you played, were they primarily solo gigs, or were you playing with uh, with um, other no, artists? To start with, they were all solo gigs, and uh, then eventually, I began adding musicians. You know. Well, tell me about you know after after that uh, stint with CBS was up, you eventually. I, it was right around the time you moved to the States, uh, back you know, in the mid-'70s. Was this around the time that you began working with Alan Parsons on the Modern Times album? Um, yeah, I, I, Alan Parsons, I worked with him on uh, Modern Times first, which is the album immediately before Year of the Cat. Mm-hmm. And then he did the, uh, the next two after, after Modern Times. And, and it, it, you're talking about success. and I mean, we haven't had uh, a hit, if that's what you mean. Um, but each album had sold more than the one before. Right, right. And... Um, you know, we began by selling, I don't know, 2,701 or something of the first album. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think we sold, the Love Chronicles did pretty well. I think we did about 20,000 of that, and I think yeah. we did 30,000 of the one after that, and maybe 40,000 of Orange. And then we did 75,000 of Past, Present, and Future. And uh, Modern Times actually did 150,000. So if you look at it on a graph, yeah. wow. Uh, as I said to CBS, I mean, they wouldn't listen to me because, you know, they were interested in signing the next Wombles, you know. But uh, I said, just just put all this on a graph and you'll see where it's going. Uh, and they said, yeah, but, you know, we're looking for a pop star and you're not a pop star. And I said, well, <laughs> if I keep doubling myself on every album, I will be, won't I? You know, and they, they just didn't want to know. So um, Year of the Cat came out and I predicted we'd do at least a quarter of a million and it would probably make the top 20. Wow. Just because, you know, I was just looking at this the scale of all the other albums. Um, and, of course, that's exactly what it would have done, except we had, there was a hit single on it, which, of course, is something that I never foresaw. Mm-hmm. To me, 
Um, if I'd been CBS, I would have hung on to me, but you know they they didn't. They dropped <laughs> me, so I signed with another label. Well, our, well, RCA picked you up, and that's when, uh, of course, you had the success with Year of the Cat and, and Time Passages, and right. Um, you know, both of those tracks, title tracks from those two albums, became you know two of the biggest hits of your career. And of course, uh, Year of the Cat also contained the hit on the border. But thinking back to how you approached these two albums, do you recall doing anything different in your writing and creative process that led to the success of these two albums? No, I didn't. Um, I, what I did was, uh, Past, Present, and Future was, and probably still is, my favorite of, of the albums that I've made. Um, so I knew I wanted the historical element. Uh, modern times, um, I just got, Luke O'Reilly had started managing me, and he said, you have to have lead guitar. He said, American radio stations won't play you unless you have lead guitar solos. So we got Tim Rennick, who's a great guitar player, to come in and um, you know, and play all over it. So... When we made Year of the Cat, I said, well, I want to go back to the, you know, the storytelling historical elements, um, but let's keep the lead guitar and let's see if we can put the two, you know, the two things together, yeah. which, of course, is what we did. And uh, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is it about time passages that you didn't care for? Is that true that you weren't crazy about that track? Um, I, I thought it was... Um, we'd, Clive Davis over at Arista had signed us um, and uh, he said he didn't care what I did, but he wanted um, at least two mid-tempo ballads, I think. Uh, yeah, they, they, he, Clive is actually pretty specific. I think he said they had to go at 120 beats per minute or something like that. So <laughs> <I had to go>. <laughs> <laughs> and he had to repeat the chorus, you know, like sort of a certain number of times. I mean, it was, you know, to me, this was, I'd never heard. I mean, I'd made six records and seven, actually, at that point. Um, and nobody at any record company had ever offered me any advice whatsoever. I mean, I basically they ignored me. I would hand the tape in, they'd release it, and that was that. You know, oh. the first six sure. albums, I don't think CBS in England ever got me an interview. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, it just you know, because I was considered unpublicizable. Someone told me that at one point, anyway. <laughs> and um, and then here's Clive, and he's telling me what he wants. So, you know, it's a new relationship. So we, you know, we we. We worked out what 120 beats per minute sounded like, and it um, sounded like um, Time Passages and Song on the Radio. And, of course, it sounds like You're at the Cat. I mean, they're all basically the same song, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, and Song on the Radio was a, was a small hit single, too. It was a great it made track. the top 30, anyway. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure he knew what he was talking about, but uh, to me, this was not what I wanted to do. You know, I mean, if, if that was what it took to be a pop star, I didn't really want any part of it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I decided to become an anarchist and uh, go back to writing <laughs> historical songs. I've lost all interest in me. Well, just I, just in thinking about Year of the Cat, I had read that uh, on that entire album, you had written all of the orchestration, all the parts that you composed the songs prior to writing any lyrical content. Is that yeah, true? That, and that's true of, of every album I made yeah. from modern times all the way through um, uh, A Beach Full of Shells in 2005. So for 30 years, I basically, I would go in, I would spend all the money, and I would create, you know, sort of 40, 50, 60 minutes of music without having written a single word some, sometimes. You know? wow. Uh, wow. The reason being, if you imagine you're in a blues band and you're the guitar player, uh, you put down the backing track, and yeah. then, um, you know, the guitar player goes in the studio, and he'll play, I don't know, 12 different passes, 12 different solos, and... Uh, you know, then they take the best bits and they combine it into one solo, and that's what you hear. Sure. Now, I'm a lyric writer, so uh, what I did was I did exactly the opposite. I recorded all the music first, and then I went home and I would write two, three, four different sets of lyrics. If yeah. there were four verses in the song, I'd write 12. 
yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, by a process of, of elimination, I, I would hopefully choose the you know the ones that were the best. You know, so I always um, wrote multiple versions of, of, of songs. Uh, so you know, I, I didn't. It, just because I'd written a set of lyrics when I was in the studio making the track, that didn't mean that was the the set of lyrics. They, they're all placeholders to me. Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of versions you know, bits of tape floating around in Peter White's studio of me singing all kinds of different lyrics, lyrics to the <laughs> songs, you know, that you know from the records. Yeah. Um, because that's just what I always did. I mean, to, me, to me, you know, the first version was not the finished version. The first version was just something that rhymed to tell me what the notes would be. And You're the Cat was actually, one of the lyrics that you wrote was about a uh, British comic who committed suicide, is that right? Yeah, Tony White, but it was called Foot of the Stage. Interesting. Um, it, it was, uh, his tears fell down like rain at the foot of the stage. Yeah. <laughs> I, <sent laughs> this, I, I liked it. I thought that was a good lyric line. Yeah. And I sent it off to um, Janus Records I was with in America at the time. Mm-hmm. And they said, no one in America has ever heard of Tony Hancock. You know, would you please rewrite it? So I said, okay, no problem. <laughs> I rewrote it. I think another version was called Horse of the Year. It was about Princess Sam. Um, really? You know, I mean, there are, just, there are so many. I just got that. of lyrics for all these things. And I'm, I've been threatening for a while if I could ever find the old notebooks to wow. do a concert in which I perform you you should know, do that. all the, the tunes that people know, but with, with yes. completely different sets of lyrics. You should do that. That would be cool. <laughs> That's great. That would be great. <laughs> hey, tell us about, uh, tell us how integral uh, part uh, Alan Parsons played in developing the sound and direction of these two albums? Well, I mean, he, he made it sound um, radio-worthy. I, I think that's what you would sound. It's a lot, you know, I mean, the production values just jump through the roof. Uh, the, the early records sound like they were recorded through a brick wall. I mean, it's, uh, you know, they're <laughs> very muffled and muddy. Um, you know, by the time Alan gets there, I mean, he's got all these techniques to make records sound great. And, uh, I mean, it took a very long time because you have yeah. to play everything about 16 times. I mean, you don't just play acoustic guitar, you play acoustic guitar and then you double it and then you triple it right, and then right. you quadruple it. Um, and you just put layers and layers and layers of things on top of each other and eventually you get this huge noise, you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and of course, it was Alan who uh, decided to put the saxophone on Year of the Cat. I, I wanted no part of that. I said, saxophone is not a folk rock instrument. I don't like it. It sounds like a wounded cow. Take it away, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I associated it with jazz, uh, and Alan said, "Trust me." He said, "It'll work." You know, so um, ever after, I mean, for the last thirty or forty years, people keep telling me they're at the saxophone on Year of the Cat, and, and I, if it had been up to me, I wouldn't have, I would never have had that on there. Um, as it was, uh, I, I didn't like it. I, I just went with the general flow because everyone else liked it. Yeah. Well, so I, I suppose you could say I was wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> And we've got a question from uh, a listener in Germany, Uwe Reith. And uh, Uwe asks about the song Valentina Way from your Time Passages album. He said that yeah. was the very first song that he, has, he uh, had heard when Jeff Percaro laid down his unmistakable shuffle groove. And, yeah. and uh, he wanted to know if you could tell uh, – if you could talk about Jeff Percaro a little bit, some of your experiences working with him. Oh, well, he's, he's a joker in the studio. Uh, well, he was. <laughs> I don't think he's with us anymore. But um, amazing drummer. Um, I mean, of course, he is an amazing drummer, at least yeah, he was. Yes. Um, he did something I'd never seen anyone do in a studio. We recorded Valentina Way, um, and, you know, we get to the end of it, and when we get to the end of it, he smashes the cymbal and he stands up as if he's live on stage. <laughs> 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 and we're all looking at it. Well, you know, what are we supposed to do? Applaud? I mean, this is extraordinary. <laughs> 
but I mean, he just, he, he gets sort of taken over. It becomes this kind of a, a performance. I mean, most fashion guys just kind of sit there and they look like they're half asleep and right. Jeff was kind of blazing through the thing and then he leaps to his feet at the end of it and it's like wild-eyed and waving his arms around. I thought, wow, this guy's really into it. Great plan. That's amazing. That's great. And of course, he plays on Running Man as well, which is another great drum part. Yeah, yeah. Uwe also mentioned that's one of his favorites as well. So <laughs> th- thanks for your question, Uwe. Yes, exactly. Hey, Al, tell us about your connection with David Pack and Joe Puerta, two original members of Ambrosia. Um, well, I've known Ambrosia forever because they, um, you know, they were produced by Alan Parsons too. Mm-hmm. Uh, David came in and sang on, uh, I think he sings on, wait, he sings on, does he sing on Valentina Way? He may do. He sings on it. Um, what, what else is he on? If it doesn't come naturally, leave it. Maybe uh, I can't remember that. Anyway, he's he's on. He's doing backing vocals on a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joe, I don't think Joe ever played on one of my records, but um, I've done a lot of gigs with uh, with Ambrose here, and, and uh, you know I've used uh, you know they they've they've played with me on stage. So um, you know I just they were just guys I knew pretty well. Yeah. David has an amazing voice, and so, I mean a great voice. You know, one one of the great voices. Uh, he's one of our past guests here on Inside Music Cast as well. So. Good. <laughs> um, Al, you had a big influence on Peter White's career on the guitar, and Peter was quoted saying, "I didn't choose the nylon string guitar; it chose me." Soon after I started playing with Al Stewart when I was 20, he put a Spanish guitar in my hand and told me to play a song called On the Border, which we later recorded on the Year of the Cat album. Can you just tell me like a cliff note or a short version of the story? Because I'm fascinated by it. Yes. Um, I, we were putting together a, a touring band. Uh, we were recording Modern Times, and we wanted to go out and do some shows. And um, we were looking for a keyboard player. And that's what Peter White was. He, he was a piano player. He'd been playing keyboards with um, with a band. Hmm. Right. And so he comes in. He's a terrific keyboard player, and we hired him. Um, and I had no idea he could play guitar. I just no. I mean, I just it never occurred to me. Um, so we we do the backing track of On the Border, and um, it sounds you know kind of flamenco-y and Spanishy. And um, either Alan or, or myself said uh, you know we should use Spanish guitar on this. I think it was Alan Parsons who said that, and um, so we said, well, we've got to find a, you know, I said, I can't play it, uh, well, and Tim Rennick was an electric guitar player, I said, we're just going to have to find someone who can play Spanish guitar, and Peter said, I can play Spanish guitar, <laughs> which was news to us, I mean, I thought he was a piano player, um, and I had this ropey old, um, but, but very nice sounding uh, Spanish guitar at home, so I think I raced back and got it, and gave it to Peter, and Peter in the meantime had been listening to the backing track, and what you hear on the record is, I think either the first or the second take. I mean, he just literally sat down and played it, and we just said, "Wow, that's it." You know, fine. Wow. Um, and it, it it was the first thing he ever recorded on Spanish guitar. I think. Yeah. So, how often now do you do you still play with Peter White at all, or you have the opportunity yeah. to do um, shows I together? I did a show with him uh, in Carmel um, about six months ago, um, which was a lot of fun. We used uh, you know some really good musicians. We had a whole band, and Peter was playing guitar. That's fact, really we've cool. A, we've got a, a video of it. I'm, I'm sort of mulling whether it wouldn't make a, a nice DVD. Hey, Al, tell us about your uh, relationship with uh, Dave Nachmanoff, your good friend and longtime musical partner. How did you guys meet? Um, well, when Peter went his, um, you know, his own way, he, mm-hmm. he, he started making uh, solo smooth jazz records, and, we, and I needed um, really an, another Peter White. I mean, I needed a, a, someone, someone to play guitar. And Dave, I think, had told Peter that um, David met Peter and had told him that he knew all my songs. And um, 
Peter said, well, there's this guy I've met called Dave Nachmanoff, and he knows all your songs. And I said, well, if he does, you know, I just have him come and do a gig, and let's see what happens. You know? yeah. it, it, I, I didn't think he did know all my songs. As it turned out, I think he knows some of them better than I do, and it's, mm-hmm. um, it's remarkable. Like, you know, anything I say, he just goes, oh, okay, and plays it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, it takes forever to rehearse. You know, I've written 400 songs. I've recorded 200 songs. And mm-hmm. to get someone to learn the catalog would take years, you know. And Dave knew them all. Yeah. Plus, he played well. So it was like an instant fit, you know. So he just immediately started playing with me, and um, he's been there ever since. Yeah. You know, we've interviewed countless of guests uh, who have collaborated with other musical partners for years. And, and uh, you know, but what is it about yours and Dave's? Your, and not necessarily the longevity of your relationship, but your similarity in approaches to music that has allowed you to gel uh, and develop where you are right now. Well, I think... Um the primary thing is that Dave is, in fact, a singer-songwriter. I mean, he's not just a guitar player. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he has his own albums and he writes his own songs. So he looks at um, the job of accompanying uh, one of my songs as being, first of all, first of all, he does something that musicians never do. He actually pays some attention to what it's about. Um, I, I, can, I, can, I promise you that, that this, is, this is almost unique. Uh, every other musician I've ever worked with has said about, say, Rose to Moscow, well, but let's do that song that's in six eight time, and I know what they mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, that's a song about you know the Russian front in World War Two. It's not a song that happens to be in six eight time. Okay. Um, but a lot of a lot of the guys, you know, they'd never pay any attention to what I'm singing. They're they're, they're acting purely on a on a musical level. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Dave actually paid attention. So you know, if I'm doing uh, uh, you know a song about I don't know, uh, you know some horrendous event in in history, he wouldn't choose that moment to, you know, sort of launch into a Hendrix solo or something, you know what I mean? There's there's some sensitivity there. Whereas in the past, I mean, I've been (laughs) doing what I thought were sensitive ballads, and I've turned around to see, like, the musician standing on top of the piano and striking, you know, sort of rock star poses, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) they just don't listen, you know I mean? They they have no no interest whatsoever in in content, it's all style. So the thing that, um, you know, made me warm to Dave immediately was that he actually did pay attention to content, you know, he had had the style down, but that he was actually listening to what it was about. Right. Hey, I want to jump ahead and I want to talk about uh, Uncorked, which I believe came out in 2009 and it was recorded with uh, with Dave. And, you know, according to Dave, you guys had so much material that you could have performed three or four full shows. Is that correct? Oh, we've done, I mean, we, we tried to change the shows all the time. Uh, I, I keep a core of two or three songs and, uh, you know, we'll... We, Slowly over the course of time, all the other ones rotate. Um, but I've I've done you know in clubs where sometimes I'll play two shows in a night. Um, the main point in Philadelphia comes to mind immediately. Um, I've done shows where I don't repeat anything. Uh, the, the audience come in and for the first show, and I'll do fifteen songs, and then another audience come in and I'll do a different fifteen songs. You right, know what I mean? Yeah, so. so because I, yeah, there are certain God, how can I say this? Uh, certain of my colleagues, let's put it that way, who. Um, you know, who have been doing basically the same show for the last 30 years. It just doesn't vary. They even use the same chat in between songs. And (laughs) and I think that this would drive me completely insane. So, you know, we we try and uh, and change everything up. You know, we try not to repeat things, you know, on, on... consecutive nights. Yeah, well, it's interesting to, to your point that you just uh, described. I was my, my next question was going to be how did you approach this project without making it sound just precisely what you said? You know, make, let's milk these songs just for a little bit more over and over type of album. Because many people try to revisit old repertoire and and they really fail. And you've kept this rather fresh, especially on, on, on uh, Uncorked. 
Well, for a start, of course, we don't play any of the hits. Right. Um, I'd already done that. I did a live album with mm-hmm. Peter White. Right. Um, so my first rule was, you know, nothing on the album with Dave should be a repeat of anything that was on the album with Peter, which meant, you know, ruling out all the, basically all my best-known songs. You know? yeah. so, so I was then free to plunge into the back catalog and, and dig out, uh, well, there's a couple of songs on there, News from Spain and um, Warren Harding that I hadn't played for 30 years. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just never played those songs. And, and um, so it was, it was very nice to be able to, uh, and there's another one that I'd never recorded, The Coldest Winter in Memory. So, you had um, never, you had you know, never it, recorded it, it was I was able to explore the unexplored. Yeah. I was going to ask, uh, you know, the impossible question. How did you uh, settle on 13 tracks? Uh, was Dave involved in uh, the final filtering? I don't know. Yeah. I don't remember if he had an input or not. Yeah. I think I think we were we were looking for uh, stuff that you know wasn't on the the album with Peter, but also stuff that was a little more obscure. You know what I mean? I mean, I had the idea of running Last Days of the Century into Constantinople. I mean, you know, and turning it into a medley, and then for some unknown reason that seemed to work. Yeah. And then we, as I said, we um, we made a demo of the song "The Coldest Winter in Memory," but we never actually put it on on an official album. So that seemed like a candidate. And yeah. then we had, you know, like a, a whole series of songs that were songs that I wouldn't normally play and hadn't played for a long time. So I think we, we were trying to, you know, sort of do, uh, do the unexpected, you know? Yeah. And from his live 2009 release, Uncorked, this is Midas Shadow from our guest today, Al Stewart, on Inside Music Cast. Got your ticket and your hotel keys And your overnight bag at your feet You're looking down on the tropical trees While the Spanish maids pick up the sheets Conquistador and such a fool For all the jacked reasons That's so hard to see Just follows wherever you go Nothing ventured, nothing gained, they said All you played for, the one who takes all Pass the dice high up and cringe your head To see how the numbers would fall You stole the game so easily You luck run with the seasons Still the shadow that the night won't free Just falls wherever you go
dip out on the bottom cut All you'll wait for your seat on the plane The movie runs but you're still walking hard Oh, you don't touch your food or champagne I know that when your well runs dry You wanna know the reason The empty night brings you no reply It just follows wherever you go mentioned on your website that you, you know you're a better musician today than than you know than 30 years ago or, or you know back when you first started and obviously you've obviously I've had years of experience and years of, of practice and honing your skills and, and continuing to do what you do do you have a disciplined practice regimen or do you simply just play much more and more often well you know what it's weird because I don't if it says that on my website I have no memory of saying it and I don't <laughs> think it's true um, I never practice I, I never have practiced I don't, and, and I would go further and say I don't really think I'm a musician. I mean, I'm, you know, I know a handful of chords, um, but you know, I, I never just pick up the guitar and, and practice scales or anything. I mean, um, I see myself as a lyric writer. I don't really know what anyone else sees me as. You know, yeah. Uh, I'm someone who is too lazy to write a book, so I write, um, you know, miniatures and, and call them songs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but they're all they're all actually the beginning of novels that I haven't written. Yeah. So this question is for our guitar aficionados who are listening, because there's a lot of musicians who are part of our audience. You've used Taylor guitars uh, often. Uh, is that the only make of guitar that you uh, play or endorse? Do you have any endorsements right now or not? Oh, no, I don't have any endorsements. Okay. I, I really don't play well enough to, to okay. do that. Right. Um, I use Taylor's because uh, Lawrence Juba convinced me that I should play Taylor's. And actually, the one I play all the time, I really only have one. Um, that I use, and um, it had, had a crack in it, and, and it was incredibly cheap. It was a, a factory, a factory sample with a crack in it that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't unload, and so they gave it me for I think it was seven hundred dollars, probably the best seven hundred dollars I've ever spent. That's I've been awesome. playing it for what about twenty years now, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, I know that you see, this is this is how you know I'm not a guitar player. Um, <laughs> I know a, a whole slew of musicians, as you can imagine. And uh, some of the more famous ones, I mean, they have guitar museums in their houses. I mean, I know people who have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of guitars. Right. Um, and they're all over the walls, and they're in every single cupboard. They're just everywhere. <laughs> the whole, whole house is full of guitars. And I have one. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know, because that's all I need. I mean, it's, I think they're pretty. If I had unlimited funds, you know, I might have two or three. But um, <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't understand why you would need two or three hundred guitars. You can't play them all at the same time. But uh, you know, I mean, people get. You know, they they get totally into owning one of everything, and and I do that. I just don't do it with guitars. I mean, I, I collect things. I just don't collect guitars because it's my. You know, it's my instrument. It's what I work with. You know, it's my tool, uh, tool of the trade. Yeah. 
Right. Um, after such a long and notable career, what haven't you done yet that you still want to accomplish as a musician? Um, oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm <laughs> I don't think I'm not sure there is anything that I would like to accomplish that I'm capable of accomplishing. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, I can think of a million things that I would love to do, but that I can't. Um, I lack the skills to do them, or, or in the in the odd case where I might have the skills to do them, I lack the um, at this stage of the game. With all the record stores closing down, I mean, I, you know, there isn't really a financial incentive uh, to you know to go out and to do large production things. Uh, yeah, that's um, true. I mean, I'd love to do um, like a David Bowie pinups record, you know, like uh, playing all the the mid sixties pop songs that I really adore. You know what I mean? Because there's a side of me that's pure pop. I mean. Uh, or, or should I say pure rock, you know? I mean, I can't explain by the who. I mean, I'd love to do an acoustic version of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and there's a whole load of early rock and roll things that I just adore. Um, but me covering that, um, you know, it might sell three copies. You know, it might cost, you know, a quarter of a million dollars to make. So there's no, there's no real financial way of doing that. And there's really no point because in, at the end of the day, the who's version of can't explain will always be better than anyone else's, you know? Yeah. But um, there's a side of me that would like to do an album of Dwayne Eddy covers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know I, I don't think anyone would buy it, but it would make me happy. <laughs> Well, you just mentioned. Although this. I did think one project I had was um, after I wrote Warren Harding, and um, on the last album I had a song called like William McKinley, and another song uh, called The Eisenhower Years, and uh, uh, it did occur to me that I could do one project, you know, sort of on all the American presidents, um, you know, just a song for each. It would have to be a quadruple album. <laughs> I'm just fascinated by people like Frank Pierce. I mean, I, I don't want to do the the obvious ones. But, That'd be great. You know, you just mentioned a second ago that there's some song, you know, some pop songs and some rock songs from the '60s that you adore. But tell me about, you know, are are you listening to a lot of music that's coming out now? And if so, what is it you're listening to now that really you think is well done, well written, both lyrically and musically? Oh, sure. Um, Yeah, what I do is I buy um, some of the music magazines, especially the English ones, Q. Um, uncut, Mojo, these kind of things. Um, and they're all full of bands usually that I haven't heard of. And what, I, well, of course, in this day and age, all you have to do is to go to YouTube. And if it tells me that, you know, Arcade Fire are a great band, I mean, I'll, I'll turn on YouTube and I'll type in Arcade Fire and, and yeah. spend the afternoon catching up with them. And so I've managed to um, actually listen to a whole slew of new bands. I mean, by no means all of them or even close to all of them, but. I do hear a lot of new music all the time because every time I buy a copy of, of you know one of these music magazines, the first thing I do is to look up all the bands on YouTube. So right. uh, this this way, I've become acquainted with you know sort of I don't know surf punk and a whole load of things that you wouldn't think at my age I would know about. <laughs> um, but I just I think it's fun in terms of what I really really like. Um, I love Joanna Newsom. Um, I think she is probably as a lyric writer. I think she might be the only one of her generation who's truly in the same class as, say, Leonard Cohen or um, Bob Dylan or, you know, the, 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 or Joni Mitchell. Okay. Um, Joanna Newsom is, is absolutely extraordinary as, as, a, as a lyric writer. Um, and uh, so I love her. I mean, Laura Marling is cool. She's not in the same class, but she's cool. And, uh, you know, there are, there, are, there are a lot of other things like that. I like Elbow. <laughs> yeah. uh, they have a line in one of their songs, um, which is, 
you're, you are the only thing in any room that you're in. And that's a great line when you think about it. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm forever listening to new bands and picking up uh, you know, lines here and there that just seem to jump out of the track at me. Um, you know what? I'm a huge music-laden fan. I still watch some of those from back in the day. And I was just wondering what your experience was on that show and if you enjoyed doing that. Well, it was interesting. I, I remember the show. Um, uh, it was in the middle of a German tour, and so we were all a bit, you know, sort of, we were all a bit tired and frazzled. And um, and I thought, well, we're going to do a German television show. You know, we, it'll be full of Germans. But when I got there, it was, it was. I think almost most of the audience were um, U.S. military personnel. <laughs> really, <laughs> the room was full of Americans because I don't think the Germans had really <laughs> caught up with Year of the Cat. And of course, it was a big hit in America. <laughs> So um, it, it was not. It was a German television show that, where, where the audience were, you know, largely Americans. Yeah. Um, what, what did I think of the show? It was fun. I mean, it, you know, it was fun to do. Yeah, there's some great performances from that. I, I just I enjoy those. Well, speaking of Americans, you said that uh, I, I guess you're going to be touring the states here sometime this spring. And uh, I was wondering when, when was the last time you were here in the states? Uh, we're touring the states. I mean. Well, well, I, I, I tour all the time. I mean, um, I, I, I'm taking January and February off because it's too cold. Uh-huh. Um, in the old days, uh, I would go anywhere at any time of the year, and I've learned over the years that, you know, being in blizzards and snowstorms in, like, you know, sort of Canada in January is just not what I should <laughs> be doing. No. Um, so I tend to not work in January, and uh, this year I'm not working in February either. Um, but, you know, the rest of the year, you know, it, it, you know, we do 70 or 80 shows a year, um, it, most of them here, but we also do tours of Holland and Germany and the U.K. So, sure. Um, you know, I will be working, and I do work, but it's not really a tour. Uh, in America, what I normally do is I'll go out and pick an area of the country, like, say, the Northwest, and you'll do, you know, you'll do three shows. You'll play Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then come home, you know. Right. I have four days off. Absolutely. Uh, so it tends to work kind of like that. So after doing these shows that you have coming up, uh, what else do you have planned for 2012? Anything else? Um, there's a... Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so let it come at you. <laughs> sort of let it come at you, huh? I don't think I make plans in that way. I mean, <laughs> okay. it's, it's, uh, it's whatever John Lennon said, you know, um, about life happening to you. And it, 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 I don't have any sort of, you know, definitive plans, things that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um because the, the great thing about this business is how surprising it is. Uh, the things, you don't have to make plans because things just happen. Um, and they come out of nowhere. You know, like last year, there was, I, I, found, I, went, I flew to Italy and did a television show in Italy, um, which I swore I wouldn't do. Because uh, <laughs> it's a very long way to go to play two songs. You know right, I mean? sure. <laughs> but, I, but of course, I ended up there. And then, then it was, once I was there, it was fine. It was good. Yeah. Um, but things things just happen. I mean, uh, the, someone's trying to get me to uh, you know go and play guitar in, in a in a in they play electric guitar in a, in, in a band doing covers of old rock and roll songs, which I alluded to earlier. Um, I don't think I should because I don't think I would do it very well. You have you have to play to your strengths. But you know, part of me is very tempted to do that for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then of course there are all the you know the folky gigs, and um, I I poodle about you know sort of attempting to write songs. Uh, whether or not you know there is uh, an outlet for them, because you know CDs um, have largely disappeared, um, you know you can still write them for your own uh, for your own benefit. I, I wrote a song about 
how about a, a, a traveling salesman of archery equipment? I mean, I don't know, I don't know who else would do that, but I did. <laughs> uh, a traveling salesman of javelins. <laughs> archery goods and supplies. Uh, oh, and, and so I'm, you know, I'm still, uh, you know, sort of writing songs here and there. Oh, good. Uh, whether they'll ever see the light of day is, is quite another matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, any any plans for uh, any new material though uh, coming up? Do you have your sights on any any uh, uh, a new album in the near future? Well, I mean, if you um, if you tell me how to sell it, I'll make one. Okay, yeah, really? Basically, if you tell me how to finance it and sell it, I'll make it. I can't make it. In the old days, the record company would give you some money. You'd make sure. an album. Sure, sure. Um, hopefully, it would sell enough to uh, you know to make a profit mm-hmm. or at least break even, and, and that was how it was done. Um, then they closed all the record stores, and um, I'm not quite sure how it works now. I mean, I, I can't. I can't, um, you know, I have to pay the mortgage. I can't just right. go to the bank and empty right. it and take all my money and make a record and then put a flag on my roof saying, come and buy my record, you know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That has sure. to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't make a record unless you can sell enough copies sure. to, um, you know, to, to, to make it worthwhile. I mean, obviously, we can make a live one with Dave and I because that just involves sticking a microphone in the room. Uh, but to make a studio album, what it probably cost you 50, 75, 100 grand, and you, you have to sell that many records to, um, you know, to, to even break even. Yeah. Now, if you've got $100,000 and you want to give it to me to make a record, I'll make <laughs> you a record. Um, but I'm not going to finance it because um, yeah, that way lies madness. You know? Well, we'll put that out there for all of our listeners. If you've got an extra hundred grand, uh, Al, can, uh, we can get you his address. And, uh, yeah, you know. I mean, it, it, people... <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, it has to be uh, someone somewhere has to has to want something. Right. I mean, I could uh, right now, I could I could open a factory selling um, I don't know um, pewter giraffes, for example. You know, um, <laughs> and I could manufacture three million pewter giraffes, and I could then sit there and say, okay, come and buy them. Now, if I sold two, and I was left with uh, two million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety eight pewter giraffes, uh, you'd say that probably wasn't a very good move. And the record industry is no different to the uh, pewter giraffe industry. There has to be a demand. If there isn't a demand, you you, you don't make the product. You know? Does that make any sense? <laughs> that was a great analogy. That was a wonderful you. analogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Al, thanks so much for spending time with us. We really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Okay, well, I, I hope some of it was good. Yeah, it's oh, great. Uh, <laughs> and for more information... I'm a little lightheaded today, so I, I don't know if I made any sense or not, but thank you anyway for it might, your might be kind the, interest, as they say. It might yeah. be the cleaning materials in your apartment there today. Maybe it's got you a little tipsy. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say in a, that. in a room away from the, um, the vacuum cleaner. The formaldehyde. Yeah. <laughs> Al, and for, more inf- for more information, Al does have a website. It's, it's alstuart.com, is that correct? Um. Alstuart.com, yes. Yes. Um, yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. Okay, um, very good. Yes. Well, <laughs> Al, thanks so I'm, much. I'm incredibly vague on anything electronic. If it plugs <laughs> in, I don't know how to use it. <laughs> I must be the only, only person in the world who doesn't have a cell phone, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm just not... You know, if it's technical, I can't do it. <laughs> I can rhyme anything, but I, but I can't work technology. <laughs> thanks again, Al. You're welcome. Thank you, Al. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Special thanks to Al Stewart for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, and Max Zape, for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For more information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. 
Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.